Monday, October 15th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 180 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is saxophonist, conductor, arranger, and uh, all-around good dude, Stuart Bogey. Let's have a listen. That's some rather futuristic soul music, if you ask me. Stuart Bogey is on the show today. He's a great guy, and uh, you're in for a nice conversation. Today on the show, Stuart Bogey. Before we get into it, a couple things. I want to remind you that this Friday night, I'll be uh, playing a duo concert with my brother, Brian Chase. Brian Chase on drums. That's happening at the Demena Center for Classical Music. It's on West 37th Street in Manhattan. It's part of a benefit fundraiser for the uh, new and forthcoming firehouse space. Great performance venue uh, previously in Williamsburg. Reopening in Sunset Park. Uh, there's going to be a lot of great music. String Noise with uh, Pauline Kim Harris. James Ilgenfritz. It's going to be a really nice evening of music, and uh, I'm glad to be able to help out and, and play some music with Brian. So if, if you're around this Friday, come to the Demena Center for Classical Music, uh, Midtown Manhattan. Go to the 5049 website to find out more about that. And then also, for those of you in France, however many of you that may be, I'm going to be playing in Paris on Halloween solo. Uh, I'm actually working out some special tunes for that show. I'm actually going to play a couple of standards. So that should be kind of funny at the very least. Uh, I'm planning on playing You Go to My Head, one of my favorite tunes of all time. Uh, that's happening October 31st. Go to the 5049 website to, to find out about those shows. If you're enjoying this show, I want to remind you to please uh, do a couple of things or maybe one of these things. Please rate and review the show in iTunes. It helps. It helps a lot. Uh, it brings visibility to the show. And subscribe to it while you're there. If you subscribe to the podcast, you will get the new episodes to your mobile device as soon as I put them up, literally within seconds. I upload those things, and on my own iPhone, I instantly see that it's available in the feed. Uh, so, so do that. And if you're really digging the show and you want to hear the first 80 episodes, Go to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash 5049podcast and become a monthly donor. Uh, you can do it for as little or as much as you like. By doing so, you will gain access to that archive. 80 episodes. That's that's uh, Craig Taborn, Jim Thurwell, uh, Trey Spruance, Mary Halverson, William Parker, Joe Morris. Uh, there's a lot of really good shit in that archive, and I would encourage you to check it out. All right, today on the show, Stuart Bogey. What do you guys know about Bogey? Uh, I'd imagine that for some of you, you might not uh, be that familiar with him, uh, or, or you might think that you're not that familiar with him. Bogey, in addition to being a remarkable saxophonist and really sweet guy, has been incredibly prolific 
in New York City and around the world for for the last 20 years or so. He hasn't uh, done much under his own name, Stuart Bogey, uh, but he's been in the band Antibalas since 2001. He, uh, he's, he's kind of an OG member at this point. And uh, along with that band, you know, he's toured the world. They've, they've made a bunch of records. Uh, most recently, and perhaps notably, <clears throat> when there was the Broadway production of Fela, uh, the, the Broadway show about uh, Afrobeat legend Fela Kuti, Antibalas was the house band, and Stuart was the featured soloist. Um, as you'll hear Stuart talk about today, uh, he, you know, Afrobeat music, and, and when you're talking about Afrobeat, you're talking about Fela Kuti. Let's just be straightforward about that. He, this is very important music to him, and on Broadway, in a Broadway show directed by Bill T. Jones, every night Stuart was improvising solos in the spirit of Fela Kuti on his tenor. Um, it's a pretty remarkable experience. And if you're a fan of bands like Arcade Fire, TV on the Radio, um, Iron and Wine, uh, you've listened quite a lot to Stuart Bogey. Uh, he has done a lot of work with producer uh, Dave Sitek, who is not only a producer, uh, but, but instrumentalist in the band TV on the Radio. Um, they've done a lot of work together. If you go to to the Discogs page for for Bogey, you're gonna it, it's pretty expansive. Um, I've known, I've heard about Bogey for years. Uh, we we sort of hint at it and talk about it today, but you know Matt Bowder, the saxophonist who I'm very close with and is you know a good friend of mine. I see the two of them as sort of a, a triumvirate with Colin Stetson being the third part of it. Uh, those three guys go way 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 back and. In the last several years, uh, they've occupied the sax chair uh, in a lot of the same groups, uh, most notably the bands that I just named, uh, Arcade Fire and Iron and Wine. Stuart is a full-time member of Arcade Fire and with that band has you know, toured the world many times over and has uh, picked up some pretty amazing stories along the way. You'll, you'll hear those stories today. More recently, uh, Stuart has found the time uh, amid all the touring and the Broadway stuff and the production stuff uh, to prepare a new record by his band, Superhuman Happiness. And I'm putting this episode up today because they have a new record coming out this Friday, October 19th, called Beacon. You listen to Superhuman Happiness, and number one, the name is very accurate. Uh, it's a great, it's the perfect name for this music because it is really uplifting, enjoyable, fresh music. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, it's also really thoughtful, really well-produced. Stuart's kind of the, the, the driving force behind the group, and you can hear all that experience uh, uh, reflected in the music. That's coming out this Friday on the label Yeggs. Go to yeggsrecords.com. That's Y-E-G-G-S records.com. Stuart's a good dude. If you want to find out more about him, go to stuartbogey.com. I, th I think after this, uh, you listen to today's conversation, you might be compelled to find out more about Stuart. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Stuart Bogey. The Arcade Fire... Uh, I, I feel like they have like pretty good taste in sax players, like yeah, 
between you and Bowdy yeah. and Colin, it's like their track yeah. record for picking for picking sax players is pretty solid. Yeah, they had and they had amazing brass players too. This guy Kelly is Pratt. It, and, um, I know Kelly. Yeah. Is he still in the group? Mm-mm, no. Colin and Kelly did the uh, Neon Bible tour. Okay. Which was which would have been like 2008 maybe. Uh huh. 2007, 2008, and th- those guys did that tour. And then when they did, the third album was called Suburbs. Uh huh. And that's the one that won the Grammy. And they just toured. They just. They just toured with seven of them. No, right. no auxiliary musicians. Right. And then when they did Reflector, they called Colin and I. Right. And that was like a real yeah. sax. Yeah, they wanted a little bit, little bit. I think more rhythmic sax. Thing. Yeah. That was the the record was more dance. They didn't. I mean, I'll admit, like, I never really checked them out until I knew people that were playing. Uh huh. (laughs) It's fine. They're like, yeah, I'm I'm the same way I would have expected. Yeah. I thought, I just, I don't know. I assumed, like, indie rock, like, it's like, it's a bunch of dudes, like, staring at their shoes and shit. Yeah. They do have, um, yeah, you can, sometimes you think it it could, it's going to be dour or take itself really seriously. And it does at moments. Sure. Um, when it wants to, like, accomplish that kind of goal poetically, but, um, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of, you know, creative bounce and like, you know, New Order is an inspiration. I think yeah. a lot of people in the band. And yeah, yeah, totally. So there's there's like a dance element to it. It's you know there's so yeah. much to be said for like. Um, thank you for bringing this wine. Oh, you way. bet, you bet. Yeah, cheers. Man, cheers, cheers. Oh yeah, is that right? Oh, that'll do, man. All right, all right. No, for the ability to like command an audience like you know brian chase is one of my dear friends yeah i've gotten to see the yeah 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 is like in many situations you know for Mm -hmm. like throngs of crazy fans as well as like small friends and family shows yeah and it's like whether you dig the music or not which i actually really do what karen does very few people have the ability and the talent to do that i mean she will make fifty thousand people feel like she's talking right to them it's a special thing yeah yeah, and and beyond that, she can really sing. It's like there's people who can connect that way, uh-huh. and they're maybe more theatrical, right. or maybe they go into another kind of charismatic role, preacher or something like that, <laughs> politician. But she can sing and convey yeah. like art, yeah, just like swimming in the in your mind while it's happening. And there she is, embodying it. It really is something amazing. Yeah, I I mean you get like. When you hear about people talk, I mean, only churches I've ever been in have been like as a tourist in Europe. Mm-hmm. But when you hear people talk about like, like certain church upbringings where like you know you feel the power of like the, the, the congregation with the music, it's yeah. like we're feeling the same thing. Yeah, like, I don't know if God has anything oh, to do yeah. with it. You know, it's just like this, this group event that someone is conducting. Yeah, you're resonating. Yeah, with people, that's kind of the goal of it all. Did you? I feel like between you and Colin Stetson and Matt Bowder, there's like there's like a Michigan conglomerate. Yeah. Are you from there? <clears throat> no, but I moved there when I was 17 to go to boarding school. Oh, really? At uh, Interlochen Arts Academy. I went there for a year. Oh shit. Okay. I chickened out. I was in a um, I, I got I got really I didn't chicken out. I got cold feet uh-huh. when I was in high school that um I wouldn't get into a, a music school that I wanted to go to. Uh-huh. So I kind of signed up for a year of 
ass whooping. <laughs> that was your idea? Yeah. I was like, oh. What, you, you felt I, be, like... I better go to this boarding school where they'll, uh, well, I'll practice every day because everybody's practicing. Uh huh. Because uh, I wasn't practicing at home enough. But you knew that you wanted to become a professional musician. I thought my thinking was I wanted to be a band director. Uh huh. And I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be near the music. Yeah. I never wanted to be first chair. I never saw myself as a soloist or anything. Um, but I just wanted to be near that spark, near the excitement. But that's kind of like some pretty mature thinking in that I feel like especially with like a horn like as soon as you start playing like you want to be out blowing your guts out you know and then if you get into the jazz thing you're like oh I want to be like Coltrane I want to right. be a like bird I want to be out front like oh I, I played clarinet until I was t- 25 <laughs> I didn't play saxophone you at only all only played clarinet and bass clarinet and really and contrabass clarinet and alto clarinet the misery stick yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's my shit. That's my horn, yeah. and it's like, yeah, you. Uh, it's it's pretty limited in terms of yeah. um, the power. Yeah, I was super frustrated, and like, so just picture me. I'm like 20. Uh huh. And I start. I I have a band with Colin Stetson, who's like in Michigan. In Michigan, right? Who's like blowing his face off? Yeah, and according to Matt, he was doing that when he was a teenager in high school. Yeah, yeah. So loud and powerful, broad sound. Um. And I'm there with a clarinet, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, um, and we had drums and an electric bass, a drummer, Andrew Kitchen, and this electric bass player, Eric Perney, uh-huh. um, who went on to do some stuff with Tom Waits and some other stuff in the in the Bay Area. Yeah. But um, yeah, we had a band called Transmission. Right. We had also had a band called Transmission in high school with the same bassist and drummer and a guitarist named Zach Mastoon. When we went to college, Zach didn't come to the same college as us. But three of us wound up at Michigan, so we were like, let's do the same band. In Ann Arbor. Yeah. Right. And then we did the band in Ann Arbor. And we got Colin in it. And I remember there was this moment when I was, we were 19. It was September. Me and Colin had lived together in the summer, and we had fought. We'd faced off. About we, personal stuff or music stuff? Yeah, we, uh, both. Uh-huh. We just, and, and we had like, we both had ponytails. <laughs> we both liked John Zorn. You know, and yeah. like Colin was super athletic and had like a really wide neck and he could do like all these push-ups. Yeah. And um, and I was just like super cynical and still bitter about jocks from public high school and stuff. Right. And yeah. then there was just one day where we were, I w- we just decided we got we to gotta join forces. <laughs> and I remember the talk. We were like in a car and it was like, it was like raining. Music you was playing softly. Cars. And I was just like, man, yo, we got to team up. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. And like, we've been best friends ever since. <laughs> and but you like, were only playing clarinet at that. Yeah. 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 But like, I mean, imagine what a neat thing that would do to you to have, like, so Colin would play and just like obliterate things. And yeah. he's like doing all these crazy tonguing things and these giant harmonics and the bands crashing and banging behind him. And then he stops and everybody screams, you know? Yeah. And then it's like my turn to solo. With like a liquor stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's like a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I had two options. One was to play something very gentle sure. and sweet. Bring it down to like a Yeah, total yeah. slow ball. Um and and the other was to play something funny with um humor and that relied on timing uh-huh. and simple melodic shapes that played in ways that were immediately apparent. 
The clarinet lends itself well to that. It does. Yeah, it's, it's like a cartoony instrument. Yeah. Yeah. So I got into that, even though it wasn't necessarily the role I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. It was right there, and I found like an artistic uh, confidence in playing it that way. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like... How, how yeah. old are we talking? You're talking 20, 21? Uh, 19, 20, right. 21, 22. And then, and then we all moved to San Francisco, and we did it out there for a little while. I lasted about a year and a half in the Bay. In the Bay? And I was like, I'm out of here. Had the Bay already, I mean... No. Right. No, the first crash hadn't even happened yet. Right. Well, I mean, what, what was it that you didn't dig out there? Uh, well, we didn't know that many musicians. Right. We lived in San Francisco. All the musicians lived in Oakland. At like that time, si- still. Yeah. Wow. Since then, I've met. I would met. I had met like the OCs and all these really cool sure. bands that lived in Oakland. We didn't know anything about it. Right before I left San Francisco, we had caught on, and Mills College had just gotten Fred Frith teaching. Uh huh. So Colin, Eric, Perny, the bass player, and I would drive over the bridge twice a week, and take Fred Frith's large improv class. You like audited it or something? Yeah. And it was, they didn't care. They just let us show up and be there. Yeah. And there were like 20 people in there, which is not, you don't want that many people in your improv class. Right. But man, I learned tons in that class. Did you get to know Fred through it? A little bit. Yeah. Um, other people got to know him much better because they, they kept taking the class. Yeah. But um, I got to know him a little bit and, and it's amazing. And these were classes in free improvisation or? It was a large, it was large ensemble improvisation. So it was a performance group that I did it. I still a, don't know how to do that, that did shit. A, yeah, I, I, I it's. I mean, what it makes my skin on? crawl. What would I'd rather have like a five-hour band meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I'm learning a ton, and like I, I hear incredible stuff. Like, I mean, there was bad, there were great musicians in the class. We had, um, John from Deerhoof, John, uh, uh, the guitar player. Uh-huh. He was in the class. Chess, Chess mm. Smith, the drummer. Maestro. Yeah. Yeah. He was in the class. Um, Eli, uh, Eli Cruz. Uh-huh. The, um, who, who's now producer, engineer. Engineer, yeah. Yeah, he was playing bass. Um, and he also did, uh, we did a frog piece where everybody did frog sounds, and he was like the king frog. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was really awesome. <laughs> right. But I had too much of an ego to share with 20 people. Really? Which was also was information. I guess so, yeah. I wanted to like... I wanted to like be able to explore melody and have dialogues and stuff like. I mean, when you have twenty people improvising, what was Fred's approach to that? What was he teaching you? Like, dial it down to a twentieth of what you would normally do. Or? He would do all kinds of different things. Um, he tried a bunch of different stuff. We tried playing in C, the the piece by Rod. Terry, yeah, yeah, which was cool. People's time wasn't. I wanted the whole thing to be in time. Right. And then, but you could have dedicated our entire class to playing that in time, right, with each other. But that's kind of where my head was at. I really wanted to sync up with rhythms that way because that's where it felt soothing to me. Which, when I found Afrobeat, that was like ah, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. I was like, yeah, this is real therapy for my soul to be, yeah, to play something like, play something so elegant, so simple but at the same time like you know it's like a haiku every part is just like kind of perfect and yeah where everything locks in but yeah um and he also introduced us to like kind of the tradition of um group improvisation Mm -hmm. and uh we did a bunch of different things 
Oh, it's not all coming back to me right now. I mean, he he um, just left Mills. I think he just did his last semester yeah. there. And um, what a, I mean for anyone who got to go out there and study with him, like he's he's the kind of person I think of immediately. Like if there's anyone who's going to teach this shit formally, mm. he's the guy. Yeah, I remember the first day he was like, improvising alone is the easiest. Improvising with one other person is twice as hard. <laughs> improvising with three people is three times as hard. It's so and good. there's 20 of us in this class. <laughs> Man, I, I've had some amazing conversations with Fred and just like with Evan. When I was talking about Evan out there, Evan Parker. Like they say things that are so simple, like that. Like, yeah, yeah it's twice as hard when you're playing with another person. <laughs> that it's like, oh yeah, it's true. Fred told me one time, I was asking him about like, how do you guarantee you having a good gig? I feel like I go out there and I'm playing like solo improvisation. Some nights, like you know, it's transcendent. I reach for the cosmos and I find them. Yeah. And other nights, it's just you know, I want to blow my brains out. Yeah. And he was like, are you using pedals? And I said, yeah. And he goes, start by making sure that the batteries are good in each of them and your cables are hooked up right. <laughs> I'm like, that's a good call. <laughs> Sick, yeah. <laughs> Check the batteries. Yeah. Yeah. When Antibalas finally met Tony Allen, uh -huh. it was like 2000 and, I don't know, seven, eight, something like that. We were in the suburbs of Paris and, Tony Allen was like, if you get a good gig, hang on to it. <laughs> and it was just like, and oh, make sure man. you save your money. And it was just like practical. He was just like, yeah. don't go broke. Yeah, yeah, Be yeah. smart. Um, it was really fatherly advice. It, um, it's also, I remember I, I was uh, with a gig, on the gig with Evan Parker. And before the gig, we went to get a drink. And I ordered a pint of beer. And he looked at me really sternly, and he goes, "Before the gig, wine. After the gig, beer." <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you don't want to get bloated and be out there yeah. burping, and you know. Yeah. But it's just, it's like, what did you learn from Evan Barker? Oh, don't drink beer before the gig. Yeah. Only wine. <laughs> yeah, it's something. There's something like so simple about that. So when you guys were out in San Francisco, yep, developing your band, yeah. And also sort of together, collectively learning improvisation from one of the masters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why did you leave the Bay? I left. I got um, I got the feeling like a couple of the guys in the band, I think, wanted to move towards um, less uh, rambling lifestyles. They got jobs that were more serious. Like day jobs. Or like, yeah. yeah. And um, I kind of realized that wasn't me. And I also had friends back in Chicago that had started a studio and working on a lot of hip-hop and Are different kinds Chicago? of music. Yeah, I'm from okay. Evanston. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of I felt a pull of Chicago. Okay. Matt Bowder was in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of picked up and moved. I was working in a – I was working as a medical secretary. Oh, wow. Which is cool because I got to make free copies. Uh huh. Which is really important when if you yeah when you read music and yeah 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 <laughs> I I haven't needed a coffee machine since especially <laughs> if you have a mail room with they have access to you can send shit out for free oh yeah oh that would have been nice I oh, fortunately, right. unfortunately didn't have anything to mail all right um but I did have a lot of a lot of copies to make yeah and, yeah but uh the um we went to uh I just kind of realized that um I don't know I didn't feel I didn't feel like it was gonna work out there and uh. 
was I, you know, and I, I, I picked up and Colin, left. And he explained to me that going for him going to the Bay Area, he wanted to play with Tom Waits, and he knew he had to be out there to do that. That was like this dream he had, and he dragged the rest of us out. With okay, <laughs> <laughs> and we were having the time of our lives. Yeah. We weren't doing anything to get any closer to Tom Waits. Neither was Colin. Right. And to my knowledge, he didn't do anything other than, I mean, he's not religious, but he probably prayed for it like three <laughs> times a week. And then one day, I remember, it was the night, there was a big, there was a big uh, boxing match. I forgot the guy that won, but there was a huge upset. And this bouncer at the bar he was working at, he just won $1,000. And then my cell phone rang flip phone and um you know key eraser and colin was like man tom waste just called me oh god and i I, what a day i was like man some good fortune running i was so excited for him yeah yeah and that was his dream yeah that was his dream so when you went went back to chicago he said i'm gonna work at this studio where there's kind of i there were friends that had a studio that was kind of a clubhouse. Right. So we drank a lot of beer. But that's what great studios we are, quite honestly. Banged out a lot of beats. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you go to any of these fucking studios, like, you know, Studio G? Uh huh. Like, you know those guys? Yeah, yeah. Like, those guys are a crew. Yeah. You know? And I, I feel like if you're a small studio who, like, are kind of building a vibe and a scent and like uh-huh. uh you know you like if you you want that you want people to hear a record and be like oh that was made at Rudy Van Gelder's place or that was right. made, you know right uh, or like oh that's the wrecking you know you I mean, to me anyway like you kind of want to develop that thing of sure. like oh that's the producer and I can hear his crew playing on it yeah yeah they 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 had that going my friends they called it EV Productions and what were they focusing on hip hop Hip-hop, like, specifically. Yeah, and they had they had Vegas. Was the... Was the, the rapper? No, it's a... It's a city. It's a program oh. they used. They, it was called Vegas. It. Yeah, this is this was, like, 1999. For beat making? Or? Uh, for recording. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we recorded music, and, um, and I tried to do, like, some experimental-ish beat-oriented records. Yeah. Um, I did some pretty terrible stuff. Terrible really, in what way? Like, um... I don't know, like the beats wouldn't line up and I would just be like, I like it that way. <laughs> You're the <And>, only one. <laughs> yeah. And then like my friends would hear, I remember Matt Lux, you know the bass player? He's from I- Isotope 217. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing bass player. Yeah. He's one of my closest friends. Okay. And like my big brother. Okay. Um, And we hung all the time, me and him and Bowder and, and there was a whole crew of us that used to, Aram Shelton. Yeah, he's a good dude. And Dave Rampus. Another great dude. And Jason and Jimmy and the bass uh, player. Man, yeah, these are like... Yeah. Died in the wool Chicagoans. Yeah, so we'd all be hanging out. The trump player Josh Berman. Uh-huh. And, um, but yeah, so there's a whole group of people that I knew when I was there. And uh, we would all drink at the Rainbow. And yeah, Matt Lux heard the record and he was like, it's not rhythmically correct. I wish you had talked to me before you made this record or before you finished it. And I was like, oh man. Well, he'd already gone out for mastering. Like it was. Yeah, and also I didn't. Well, Actually, I don't think it was mastered. Okay. This was straight to CDR. Right on. <laughs> a CDR burner in the studio? Yeah. Yep. But it, I liked it. I liked it. And I, I kind of appreciated the way it just kind of flowed. Yeah. I liked hearing kind of different rhythms at the same time. Yeah. I don't know when. Yeah, it's funny. I, I go back and forth with that in my life. Yeah. Feeling like it's 
a travesty if the rhythm falls apart. And other times I'm like, man, I just want the rhythm to fall apart. I want to see the whole house fall so down. Wait, so if you think about when you were playing NC and Mills, yeah. and you're playing this piece by this composer where the natural flow of things is kind of like inherent to it, what do you think you were, you're hearing that was like rubbing you the wrong way? Is it, well, I would want it all to kind of like cellularly line up, you know? So right. I don't have the music in front of me, but if your pattern's like da 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 I would want that to be in time. The person playing chord notes that like I would want all those things to line up together so that you could hear the kind of composed shifts in accents and the way the notes lined up, as opposed to just let letting rhythm slide. But like, how much when you listen to you know you mentioned Afrobeat and I could still you know. Remember the first time I heard Fela Kuti? It was that record, um, blah, 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 Zombie. Yeah. Was it Zombie? I think it was Zombie. And, you know, it's like if I, I, I responded to it immediately, and if I think back on, like, what was responding to, I think it's like you have these jams that are, like, 15 minutes long, and there's that James Brown thing, of course, you know, of sort of, like, they're just behind the beat, they're just ahead of the beat, uh-huh. but they're doing it as a group, and it's just yeah. nasty. Yeah. Like, that to me, I think, is where it kind of zeroes in on, like, the sweet spot. Right. Like if you're, if, So if you're with, like, a digital beat-making program, do you think you like it fucked up because it's the only way that's going to happen with a digital beat? I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Because, that, yeah, then on the other hand, sometimes I struggle. Sometimes I wish people, I, I, if it's too, like, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up I get, yeah. when it's digital, it's just like, I don't know. I kind of like it's strictly case by case. And maybe it's day to day. Some yeah. days I'm like, I don't want to hear. Play that shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then other days I'm like, it's perfect. But when all is said and done, DJ Premier always put the beats in the right places. That's and when bad. they're a little bit, when they're a little bit out, it's in the most exquisite way. Premier is your guy? Premier. I had to call yeah. him one time. No shit. Yeah. Or a bouncer. He used to hang out at this bar that I worked at. No kidding. And he fucking came in twice and didn't pay his bill. <gasps> <laughs> I was like, yeah, fuck that motherfucker. Premier. No! And I was like, Ron, go get that guy. <laughs> You're right. Come on. He wrote like fucking Jay-Z songs and he's not taking his pen, his tab. I've heard he's a very sweet guy. But he's not. He's, he's muerto, isn't he? You might be thinking of Guru. I am thinking of Guru. Okay, yeah, Premier's still around. You're right. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was Premier that stiffed me. Oh. But I was thinking of Guru was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guru is past. Premier's still around. But I feel like guys like the like the real maestros of, of that kind of production, whether it's him, whether it's Jay Dilla, whether it's RZA, like people who really kind of create this like sonic world of yeah. just wonder, I, I feel like the challenge is they're figuring out a way to make it breathe. They're figuring out a way mm. to kind of have it have this like uneasiness to it, you know? Yeah, like yeah. even Timbaland to some extent, you know? Yeah, he's his his stuff is more right it, lined up. Yeah, but it's still you're right. Yeah, it's it's how it breathes. It's that space. Yeah, that you hear and it makes you feel. You can feel like a stretch between each beat. Had you had an interest in hip hop production before going out to the studio? Yeah, I got my first drum machine in 1985. What was it? Uh, it was a boss, uh-huh. um, like Dr. Rhythm. Was it one Dr. of those things, it was like 
silver. I had one of those. You did? Yeah. Yeah, and it opened up. Yeah. Like under the soft plastic thing. Yeah. And it was the there was an acoustic sounding one uh-huh. and an electric sounding one. I just had the electric sounding one. It sounded That's like the one I had. Shit. Yeah. yeah, it sounded terrible. Yeah. But uh, I loved it. I remember it, I, I got it. Is it one of those things where it's like you get these things that sound terrible and you're like, oh, it just sounds terrible. I'm not going to fuck with it. But you know that in the hands of like a premiere, they will make like a masterpiece with it. Yeah. No, I, I thought I, I thought it sounded incredible when I got yeah. it. I was I – couldn't, I couldn't stop over the playing moon. with it. Yeah, I yeah. was making beats and recording songs with my neighbor and stuff. Oh, man. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. But I never – I, I never picked up on the MPC. I wish I had gotten one. You probably and learned about that. Nothing. But I'm I'm out of touch with that. This is yeah. I'm not you know, I'm not yeah. uh, fifteen anymore. Right. Um But yeah, 'cause I really love what people did with that. But they do people like modern producers, they don't use the MPC, right? It's all I mean Dave Siddick, it was always a part of integral part of what he did. And I know a lot of guys still. But I'm talking about like Lil Pump and like whoever is like out there right now. I don't know. I should ask. Um, I became friendly with a great producer in Pittsburgh. I lived there for a year and met this producer named Edan, uh-huh. who produced um, records for the the late Mac Miller and right. for uh, uh, Wiz Khalifa. Those are probably two of the more yeah. Famous those people. guys are like yeah. <clears throat> and um, but we I never got to pick his brain too much about how we approach things. But he made all his sounds. You know, they yeah. all, they avoid samples. Yeah. Whenever they can. That's good. That's fucking good to hear, man. Yeah. Well, it's strictly financial. I think. Right. Like, they don't want to pay the licensing fees. Yeah. But, I mean, even, like, like you watch someone like LP work and the way he produces stuff, like, Run the Jewels and his own records and shit for Killer Mike. Like, he's surrounded by synths and, mm-hmm. you know, and he's recording things acoustically and bringing it on. Yeah. I just, I get turned off by... I mean, I know trap is like the big thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it just sounds, it sounds to me like an e-cig smells. Huh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it is kind of in that way that like millions of people are feeling this and I don't get it. It's completely synthetic <laughs> and it just, it does It's so synthetic. Yeah. I get kind of dizzy. I don't like it. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm warming up to it. I got um there's a band like you said you 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 a lot of times you wind up checking out music when your friends are working yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the same way. If I work on something, I check it out and um I connected with this band called um uh, Earth Gang okay. through through this producer Edan uh-huh. and I became a real fan of their music. It's yeah? fantastic. Yeah. It has that like kind of space thing. That's reminiscent of like a George Clinton P-Funk thing and it has like an outcast sort of vibe too and um but it's you know thoroughly modern, and it has trap rhythms that all kind of modern rhythms, and I, I really love it. Then there's this there's a, a group of guys called Brockhampton. Um, there's a bunch of them. Uh-huh. They all live in a house, and uh, I had the pleasure of seeing them a couple times this summer. On, they're from Pittsburgh. They're they're from originally the suburbs of Houston. Oh, the Houston area. Very scary but, rap music comes from Houston. But, yeah, well, yeah. Um, but I think they're from all over Houston, and then they now they're based in L.A. Right. And um, yeah, it's a very, very diverse group of young men, um, and they, uh, man, they go for everything. They, they call themselves a boy band, and and there's there's like there'll be some hard rap, and then there'll be like sentimental singing, beautiful singing, and um, really all kinds of things. And it it was a challenge for me at first when I heard it. I was like, 
oh, this is a brave new world. It just sounds like crazy but, shit. Yeah, but then I, you know, I saw him perform a couple times, and I met a couple of them, and I was very inspired. Yeah, really, I got really excited for these guys. That's and, good um, to hear. I have a lot of love for them. I'm excited to see what they do with their yeah. music. Because they're like kids in their twenties. I mean, they're you know, they're adults um, right. with huge careers. Right. But right, they right. are. But they're also yeah. When I, when I see them, I'm like, I remember the excitement I had when I was that age, right. and I'm. Man, how cool would it be to have had an audience when I was 22? <laughs> when I was 22, I didn't, you know, if like 10 people came to a show, I was yeah, stoked. At 38, I'm pretty fucking blown away with 10 people coming. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. So you leave the Bay, you get to Chicago, and you're hanging with Bowder, you're hanging. Yep. Um, Matt Lux. And Matt Lux, doing shit at Aaron, the studio. I'd see Rempus, yeah. Yeah. And we get together and we play and we'd improvise together. Um, didn't get that far with it. No? Um, with the playing. I practiced. You're still just playing clarinet? Yeah, I, I practiced a little. Colin sold me his an alto saxophone. Okay. He Decent got a, horn? He got a Mark VI. Ooh. Um, right. And he got, and, and I bought his old Martin. Okay. It's beautiful. Those Martins scream. Yeah. That's a loud horn. Yeah. 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 And I still sound terrible on that alto. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> to this day. It's, you still have the same horn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. Man, to be fair, most people sound terrible on alto. It's a hard instrument. Why? Because the ratios, when you get so high up in the tone, it's so subtle. Subtle changes just to get that to get that tone broad enough. Yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah. Now I like I like the way it sounds for some purposes. I've like kind of liberated You're my ear. You're talking specifically about your horn and your yeah. Plan. Yeah, and I'll uh, in certain kinds of music and in certain ways, it has a nice sort of like raw effect. The first, second Antibalas record, I played alto on a few songs, uh-huh. and uh, I played alto with them yeah. at first. And you were pleased with the results. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it sounded a nice kind of like more kind of raw, a little bit sharp. That stuff worked really well with the music. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, See, it's not cannibal utterly. <laughs> well, yeah, the thing with the alto to me, I think, is that like when people are really good at alto, it's fucking annoying to listen to. You know, like I don't want to listen to fucking Dave Sanborn. You know that shit sucks. But when people are really shitty, I love alto, Dave Sanborn. I got, I gotta admit, I, yeah, I do. I mean, no, I dig, I dig. It's like, yeah, I mean, but you know what I'm saying? It's like that, or even like. I don't want to talk shit. Uh, like, just when people are really like zeroed in with their tone on uh-huh. alto, it man, it I feel like I'm listening to trap music. Huh. But when people, huh. when it is, people, it is bright. When people are like really like bad at alto, which is most of the time playing like student model horns, like I don't even hear the saxophone. I just hear like <laughs> just somebody breathing. <laughs> oh, it just it makes me you know want to jump off a bridge. So then it's like, so what do I like then? It's like, yeah, well, I like who are the alto? I like Dolphy. Sure. I like Zorn. Yeah. I like Ornette. I like, yeah. well, these are all psychos, you know? Like, these are all people <laughs> who have this, like, thing that's like, I don't yeah. know what it is. What about Maceo? Maceo Parker. Yeah. No, I mean, I saw him play a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I don't, re- I don't relate to it, but I enjoy it. See, Maceo is, like, the way he would kind of play with notes and uh, the, the way he soloed is, uh-huh. he's probably in my top five soloists. Yeah. Yeah, because... Going back to that sort of sense of humor mm-hmm. and playing with a simple idea in a way that's very satisfying to hear. 
Right. Um, I just love it. I love yeah. it. Colin used to play this one Maceo solo. What was it? Colin had a fun, he was in a funk band um, when he was 19. And I was the manager. I was terrible. You were touching a whore. No, I was still, I still played clarinet, and they weren't. They weren't. They didn't want a clarinet. Nobody, clarinet. nobody let me play in their bands. Yeah, I nobody let me in their bands from the time I was ten years old. Nobody wants a clarinet. And, yeah, until I was like twenty five. Doesn't matter who the fuck nobody you are. No one wants band. a clarinet in their band. Yeah, nobody wanted a clarinet. Just never worked out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I got really into Maceo. Colin was really into him, and um, introduced me to a bunch of his cool solos, and that th- that style really stuck with me. Yeah, that funky music. I wanted. I always wanted to play like I was rhyming. You know, right. I, I would think about Guru or Q Tip or. So you really into hip hop? Yeah, I loved listening to it a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, there there's people that are straight up historians, and I've never been like a musicologist and right. able to drop knowledge about stuff. But right. I did listen to it a a good deal of yeah. it. Yeah, and you got the goosebumps. Oh yeah, like that first Nas record, Illmatic, like. Man, I was three years late to that. That's still all right, man. And then I couldn't stop listening to it. But it took me three years. Like you didn't know about it? I knew about it, and I had a friend in my face. And he was like, do you have the new Nas? Do you understand? Yeah, and I was like, no, no, leave me alone. Leaders of the new school, leave me alone. Yeah. Because I liked, you know, Busta Rhymes. Right. And this was a while before his first solo record came out. Yeah, Um, And I was into native tongue stuff. Uh Uh-huh. and De La Soul. Right. And, and their third record really got me. And so, so yeah, I like that world. But when I finally did get into Nas, that became like my favorite record. Yeah, it's pretty explosive. Yeah. Public Enemies, uh, Fear of a Black Planet was the one that made a deep, yeah. deep impact. A group called Poor Righteous Teachers, second record. Uh, no, which them, is, but I like that name. They're a great band. <laughs> they're so good. They were really popular at my high school for some reason. In um, Chicago. In Evanston, Illinois. Were they a Chicago group? No, I think they were in New York. It's funny. I feel like... Uh, th- do you know this fucking group from San Francisco? They would have been around before you got there called the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Oh, Michael Franti's group. Yeah, Michael Franti. Sure. Yeah. 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 I just heard... I actually... Dude, I didn't make this connection until just this second. I, I heard that record when it came out, you know, like a thousand years ago, and I was really into it. The last time I heard it was on November 8th, 2016. Oh, God. About six hours before the results. Oh, God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is like, it's hilarious. I hadn't thought about this in a minute. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. Ugh. Then the whole world gasped. Yeah. So how long did you stick around Chicago? That- um, I, la- I only lasted six months. Why? Um... I I had a girlfriend that lived in New York, and she was like, "You can move to New York, and you can stay with my family while while you find a place to live." And I had a um, I had another mentor, a guy named Michael Herbst. Okay, played oboe, English horn, bass, clarinet, flute, tenor sax. Studied with Makanda, mm-hmm. Ken McIntyre, and he was like, "You should move to New York." Um, and. So I had them, and then I had a friend who was like, man, I'll, I'll get you a job at this website. So I got a job, and they paid me $38,000 a year. And when they told me they were going to give me that much money, I, I was like, what can't I buy? What can't I buy? 
And I was trying to think of things I couldn't afford. What year is this? This was um, two. This is two thousand. Yeah, thirty-eight G's was a cool living in two thousand. Oh man, I was like, I thought, I, man, I did imagining not, horns you were gonna buy. Yeah, and then I was like, no, actually, to be honest, I was like, I'm gonna quit music. I'm gonna, or I'll say, I'm gonna put it on the shelf for a while. Um, it's like that train spotting thing. I'm gonna get a regular job. I'm yeah. gonna get dental insurance. I'm gonna yeah, get, you yeah, know, yeah. be able to afford living. And I'm gonna stop being such a bum. I'm 25. I gotta get together. So I went there. I worked at this um, internet company. It was called blahblah.com. It's probably uh, a valuable URL. You could probably sell yeah. that shit for some money. I, I, I they, they probably had to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, <laughs> they, funny. and it was run by some really creative, interesting people. Uh-huh. And it's just like a blah blah dot com. It's like a Charles Dickens thing, right? Yeah. Um, to name it blah blah dot com. And uh, what was the website? It was Gossip or- It was an early aggregate of independent blogs, and the idea was that it would be a hub where you could go to find. Um, channels, and each channel would be a different block. So one channel would be Pitchfork. Okay. Another channel would be, I don't know, what's a website people look at now? It's so I, different. I don't think people, but yeah. what the fuck? People look at fucking 4chan and so, Reddit. Yeah, so, so it would be like that. Um, but the idea would be that it would be, and then it, and then it would... Like a jumping off point. Yeah, and it would right. serve as... Um, running ad banners on all those websites and serve as their ad sales. Okay. So it was like Google. Yeah. In that way. And that was cool, but it was too early for the ad model to work. And the ad model started with Coca-Cola and it ended with like things that nobody wanted to be representing. So, like, like what? Like, <laughs> just, like what? Just, like, just like cheap stuff or yeah. loans or what? I, I don't even remember what it was, but they were like, this isn't going to work. We They went from like a dollar a click to penny a click and they closed up shop yeah what so you got laid yeah. off yeah i got laid off uh two weeks shy of getting unemployment oh, so you were there yeah. for like five months i was and... five and a half months yep yeah <laughs> yeah i got laid off and i was like and i was still like cool because i've been working with one of my best friends uh-huh. and it was stressful and i missed him as my friend right and we went out that night and never looked back and we we're still really close um so yeah, a week later, a guy named Chaka. Chaka? You know him? He was in the band Orange 9mm. I know Orange 9mm. And Burn. Yeah, he was in those bands. He he worked there. He was an ad salesman. Chaka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His parents called him Chaka? Yeah, okay. Chaka Malik, I think okay. is his name. And um, he was like, hey, yo, Bogey, you got to work at uh, Niagara. I got a job for you. I'm like, sweet. I'll be the busboy. Awesome. And I went and I was like the busboy at that bar in Niagara. Okay. It's like on the Lower East Side, uh, owned by Johnny T and Jesse Malin. Rivington Street? Uh, Avenue A. Okay. And like 9th? Yeah, and what are you talking about? It's right on the edge of Thompson. Yeah, 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 yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah, and it was like a punk rock bar. So I went there, worked there all the time, and that's where I learned about New York City. Yeah, like, that's a good corner for learning yeah, about New York City. And Absolutely. Was, and it was 2001. And I was, they, you know, I learned about Roxy music, and I had always hated the Rolling Stones. I didn't get it, but after working there for three months, I was like, in the right context, totally feeling the, the Rolling Stones. The grindiness of the yeah. Rolling Stones is essential. Yeah, so I was starting to understand rock, yeah, and punk rock. You never like this music hip before. music. I mean, I liked the Pretenders. I liked the Police like pop music. Yeah, I liked. Yeah, I liked. Um, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't tough to me. Tough to me was Public Enemy. Yeah. Um, 
tough to me was Zorn, Naked City, or right. um, that kind Which of Which is almost like a mockery of tough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it exposed me to a lot of things. It was a valuable part of my education. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, first of all, I don't know. If, like, me as a kid, like, I knew Rolling Stones as, like, bunch of fucking stupid old men that my dad listened to playing yeah. like coca-cola arena type things you uh-huh. know when you hear it you know like a saturated sound loud in a bar in new york city you're yeah like, oh that's what this is yeah that other thing this is what it yeah. is new york there's some about new york i, I can tell you man leads I, you to the rolling stones you know, well a lot of things you know and just to like jump off for a second and then we can jump back on but like i actually got pretty sick of, of afrobeat specifically fella Mm-hmm. And and I'll tell you why I was working in a coffee shop that just played that shit uh-huh. from sun up to sundown and yeah. I just I I just got to a point where I never wanted to hear it again uh-huh. and I got back into it hanging out at Zebulon uh huh because just like the context the vibe the smell yeah of that whole place and Jose and Jeff with their yeah. acts like the whole thing I was like yeah okay I can I can dig this again yeah because this is the right way to enjoy it yeah not while like some fucking asshead like tells me how they like their coffee no. <laughs> So you're working at this bar. <laughs> yeah. And um, learning about living in New York, learning about rock and roll and the rock and roll lifestyle. What, what were you learning about living in New York? I like, um, okay, this person comes in and the bartender, I'd walk up and be like, hello, sir, what, you know, what can I get for you? And, and th- there was none of that. He'd be like, yeah. you just look. I mean, this is a podcast, but you can't tell. It's just a head nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you want? You know, maybe throw a napkin in front of him. Yeah. No thank yous. Yeah, no, and I'm, fuck that. And I'm like learning. So I, I had to learn it like turned turn out. Yeah, turn, turn. But they were all so nice to me. They'd be like, Bogey, all right. You're a little bit nice, but we like you anyway. And they keep me around as like a mascot. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I had a lot of fun hanging with those dudes. Just being like a bar back. Yeah. Yeah. And one day I met this guy named Will that came in late around 1 a.m. And he asked me for some cognac. And I said, oh, I'm not the bartender. He's like, no, it's okay. You can get it for me. And so I asked, you know, the, the bartender, Omar, can I get? He's like, oh, yeah. You can just, you can always get him a drink. Okay. So I, I get to pour him a little Remy. Just a, just a, and he'd be like, oh, no, not too much. Yeah. Just a little bit. Full taste. And then we got to talking. And turns out it's Will Connell. Oh. The uh, uh, copyist, arranger, flute. Uh, yeah, saxophonist. Yeah, um, he played in Horace Tapscott's band. He just died a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just passed away a few years ago, and um, so he became like kind of my at work, part time, you know, elder. Will Connell. Yeah. yeah, and he would come in and just drop stories on me and all kinds of knowledge. He must have been like seventy years old. Yeah, yeah, and he was so sweet. He just kind of come in and like, be like, how you doing, Bo? He was in East Village. What dude. are you doing? Are you practicing? You're not drinking too much, okay? Like, make sure you don't drink too much when you go on the road. Make sure you're practicing. Uh-huh. And he'd tell me stories about when he was in the army and when he was a copyist for Motown. Or... I just got chills hearing this. Yeah, man. Will was amazing. And the last time I saw him, I was on a date. I was on the subway. He walked on the train. He said, Bogey. He just walked up. He remembered me. He just kissed me. Yeah. We hugged. Say goodbye, yeah. and then you know, then then it was his memorial service. I never seen him after that. Yeah, yeah, he was very inspiring. I told him that I started playing with Tom Abs, and that's when he opened up. He was like, "Oh, that's a good bass player," and, yeah. and he was like, "It's like okay, we can talk." 
Yeah. You play with Tom Apps. I'll talk to you. <laughs> Man, that neighborhood, the East Village, breeds men of the neighborhood. Mm. People of the neighborhood. There's so many characters in the East Village. And I'll never forget one day I was hanging out with my mom around Tompkins Square Park. Threadgill walked by. Oh, wow. You know, he's always out walking the streets. I, huh. You know, those are the, I'm always out walking the streets, you know. And Threadgill walked by, and, you know, he nodded at me. And I was like, Mom, that's like one of the great composers of, yeah. you know, 20th century. And she was like, really? He just looks like a cool dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just, man, yeah. Henry the, Threadgill. To Shit. me, when I think about the New York that I love, I think about the willow trees around the Tompkins Square Park. And mm. just the fucking characters walking around. Yeah. You know, the Kiki Smiths, the Zorns, the Will Connells, just like the cats. Man, and that is like, not to go down this trope of boohoo New York, but, right. you know, the crazy, the dudes, dudettes that have like just stacks of books in their house that like, are like, you know, kind of hoarders, and they've lived in this apartment for 30 years, and they have every record ever, and they know everything about Fats Waller. It's just this kind of knowledge swimming around yeah, the yeah. city, this idea that there's more than whatever's on the front page. I just hung with one of those dudes the other day. It's so important. Yeah. It's it's like, I, I, we need the diversity of a jungle. It's diversity, it's, it's color, you know? It's like... It's also, you know, I just got rid of like 500 CDs, you know, and um, I'm just like, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and it's like, no, I need that Morton Feldman book to sit beside that Miles book to sit beside <laughs> that Maya Darren book. Like, I need it, it's like it, it all needs to kind of sit beside each other. Otherwise, it's like there's a disturbance in the force, you know? It's amazing. And that's like New York, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you meet people all the time, just like Will Connolly. You're like, oh, I'm this like really sweet dude. And you're like, I just found out he's the fucking that that that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's an, um, that's an that's an exciting aspect is you can see somebody over and over again, and not necessarily know know who they are Man, in 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 the larger scheme of things. The greatest, and this was we'll get back to talking about music, but this was like a totally humbling New York experience for me. I used to manage this restaurant. In the Lower East Side, and it was a very busy restaurant, and I had a, you know there's always a two three hour wait, no reservations, just walk ins, and I had a policy that if elderly people came in, especially if they were having a hard time, they could be seated immediately. Mm -hmm. This old lady came in, she was just seemed like a character. I went up, I said hi to her, and she had like a walker, and I said, look, don't worry, you know, whatever the host had, we're gonna get you seated. Yeah. Sit her down. She's like, hey, I'm so nice. Do you have time to come sit with me? So I sat with her. Yeah. And I bought her an egg cream. Yeah. And, I was, and I was like, so what do you do Like uh, when you're not charming restaurant managers? And uh -huh. she says, well, I'm an artist. And I said, I said, really? What do you do? She goes, well, I paint, make films. And I said, do you ever show your paintings to anyone? She was like, well, I have a show up at the Met right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this artist, Ida Applebrook, which I okay. wasn't familiar with her stuff. I've since become familiar with her yeah. stuff. And she's like this radical feminist artist who like reshaped fucking Soho in the 60s. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, I like pinching her cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that is awesome. I mean, that's like, that's sort of like, um, it's like almost biblical. Yeah. And the do you know who you're talking to? There's, yeah. There's, there's the, there's the, the godliness in everybody. And this person has brilliance in them. Yeah. And in New York, you, you'd really feel that. Yeah. It's deep. It, I was drawn in by that. And that's what held me in New York for years. And when 9 11 happened, I went straight to Niagara. 
And everybody in there was like, hell no, we're not leaving. You going to leave? No. Where were you that day? Um, I was on uh, off of Avenue C, 9th Street. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was my birthday. You are born 9-11? Yeah, I was born 9-11. Happy birthday. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, two days, for anyone listening, this is two days after. This. Yeah. So I, I woke up and, and like... Yeah, and they were on fire, whatever. Uh, every, it's all these stories about it. But yeah. it, what was interesting was like um, everyone I knew was just like, hell no, we're not leaving. Yeah. We didn't know if we were being invaded. We, we didn't. We, how, all these questions. How can you make sense of anything yeah. when you watch these buildings fall? Yeah. Yeah. It was just, but the people I was hanging with were so hardcore about living in New York mm-hmm. that it was just like, fuck no, we're not going. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sticking with you guys. This is a good city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, um, since then I have left New York. I left for three years. What? Oh, yeah. You went to Pittsburgh. I moved to Pittsburgh and I spent a couple years in New Haven and now right. I'm back in New York. Yeah. And uh, kind of living between New Haven and, and New York, but yeah. m- mostly in New York. When So when did you start like getting some musical activity happening in New York? Well, it was 2001. I've been laid off. Right. I worked twice a week as a busboy. Niagara and when I could pick up shifts uh-huh. and then a cellist named Gil Selinger I know Gil yeah yeah. Gil was like come teach at this music school the Brooklyn Conservatory uh, no it was Merritt Music all the way up in New Canaan Connecticut oh, that's a weird town so it was it was a 90 minute ride either way somebody told me that John Schofield taught there in like the 70s really? or something I think Eric Krasno, the guitarist, might have told me that Schofield okay. taught there. Anyway, um, he wasn't there when I was there uh-huh. <laughs> in 2001. And it was nice. There was a piano. If students didn't show up, I could write music. Um, and and I read a lot on the trains. Um, and I come back and I go to a gig and I j- just started playing with a group with a Mayo from Antibalas. Uh-huh. And we would play. What was that group? Uh, it's called the Foo Orchestra. Okay. And I just started alto because I had all this free time. I had no money to go out. You uh, had that um, that Martin that you got from Colin. I had the Martin that I got from Colin. So I would just practice at home in my living room, which, was, your th- which was also my bedroom uh-huh. and my recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was multi-purpose. In your office. And my office. Also yeah. your lounge and your study. <laughs> my lounge study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entertain people there. Tanning bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And... And I and I Alto was kind of like how I occupied myself a couple hours a day. I bought that Steve Lacey book, Findings. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Once you find your way to that shit, it's a wrap. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, this is great. And then I did that. And then, and then Afrobeat hit. You know, it was like I started playing full orchestra, and then around May, Antibalas was like, come fill in. Had you heard Fella or any of that shit before? I had because because yeah. Michael Herbst, one of my one of my mentors, one of my big brothers in music, was playing in in Antibalas, uh-huh. and it sounded kind of crazy to me. I liked it, but it also sounded kind of backwards and weird, um, like everything I've ever loved. Yeah, I, I it was weird at first, uh-huh. and then um, yeah, I got I got in there and I started playing it, and everything lined up for me, and. All of a sudden, it was like, of course you never learned to play two fives. It wasn't your destiny. Of course you can't play the blues. It's not your destiny. Of course you can't write a song like Neil Young. It's not your destiny. You were destined to play 
Afrobeat saxophone. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then it was like, I was just home. And I would like, I'd think about Fela when I woke up. I'd think about Fela when I went to bed. I read every book I could about him. I listened to all the music. And I just loved it. Right. And it wasn't like a, a it wasn't like a, I didn't have like a whole kind of cultural revelation, revolution right. in, in my life. It was just this composing, this conception of music that I found to be perfect. Uh-huh. And I was reading Steve Lacey's findings where he talks about when he found Monk's music. Uh-huh. And he was like, that fit me just right. And I felt the same way about Fela's music. Uh-huh. Um, and my roommate had a bunch of Fela records. And thank, There's a lot of them. Yeah. And thank God we had a turntable because none of them are pitched. They're like kind of in between. Right. So if you try to learn off CDs, it's not going to work. Um, so, you know, I, I could turn up. If it was a little sharp, a little flat, whatever, I could adjust the pitch on the turntable and then start practicing with it. Right. There's something about... oh. <laughs> Am I incorrect in sort of understanding? It's like Fela, he is Afrobeat. Yes. I mean, there's others. Yeah, but but he made up the word. Right. And and he, you know, there's a lot of... I mean, it's not like, hey, He made up a lot of things. Yeah, it's not like, (laughs) hey, I'm into jazz. Oh, do you like Bird? Well, no, I'm more of a bop-bop kind of guy. Right, right. It's like, it's kind of like, I'm into Afrobeat. It's like, oh, you love Fela, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay. And, And there's people that kind of pick it up and worked in his tradition and um especially right after his death there's been a big 97 or something yeah 97 big boom of afrobeat bands all over the place yeah antibalas being being one of the right one of the early ones but it's like north america one one thing that's always kind of like struck me with fela specifically as like a um like a catch-22 or some kind of like oxymoron is like i played the fuck out of the saxophone yeah he also like by objective standards, like had some issues with his intonation and, and oh yeah, none of that mattered. Yeah, that, that it, it, didn't but matter. But it's like what when you hear him play, it's like exactly that shit doesn't matter. Yeah. And then if you sort of for me anyway, and I'm you know like I like a good story. Like when you get into like uh-huh. the the mythology of Fela, it's like you always get the impression like the horn would be like laying on the floor yeah. with like a split reed, and he uh-huh. would pick it up and just like play that shit, and then go back to you know yeah whatever he was up to. He I've seen pictures of it in a stand. He okay. kept it in his stand. Okay, okay. But definitely, and um, I asked, I asked uh, people that were in his band how he would play, how he would warm up, and he'd say, no, same as you. He'd play scales. Play and, scales. But he didn't, okay, so he was born in 1935, and he didn't start playing the saxophone until, uh, I told you I'm a bad music college, early 70s right. with the record Gentleman, um, which might have been 72, 73, 74, probably 72, maybe 72. He started on tenor? Yeah. That's so a let's, weird thing. Um, Already? No, no, I think it was alto that's on okay. there. But there's, I have never seen pictures of him playing the alto. Right. But it sounds like an alto on the song, gentlemen. He had fired his saxophonist. He had the best saxophonist, apparently, in Lagos, mm-hmm. Igo Chico, um, who had more of a hard bop style. Kind of kind of felt like Tommy McCook, if you know uh-huh. him, um, the great Jamaican saxophonist. And he went to, um, so Phil, they, they had an argument. You'll never find another saxophone player. I'll play the saxophone. Fuck you, fuck you. And... Fela comes out with this record that begins with like this giant saxophone cadenza. Um, so that is basically the mark of how he played saxophone and kind of how he lived life, which was just like 
fuck you, fuck watch you. me. I'm going to you know, make this <laughs> yeah. shit better than anyone. And it was just, just heart and attitude. And, I mean, there's genius in there. And the, the, what I love about the saxophone, when I first heard it, it was almost grating on my ear. The style was so strange. It's yeah. so sharp. It's Squeaks so squirrely. And, yeah. yeah, really squeaky. And he plays so ahead of the beat. And each one of those things through experience has proven absolutely necessary to get that music over right. Yeah, he's putting a little hair on it. Yeah. Yeah. Playing in Antibalis for a dozen years and then later on doing the, the Fela so, show on Broadway, I learned to play sharp. I prefer to solo sharp. Yeah, I was going to ask you about I that. lean ahead of the beat. Yeah. If the band rushes with me, I get angry. I'm like, how am I supposed to rush when you're rushing with me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I got to lean. Yeah. I got to lean in. Yeah. And Michael Herbst, my mentor, he said early on, he's like, there's this underlying 16th note tripling in that. Find that. Find that. And there's all these different things to listen to. The way that song kind of sings out. Um, and just to hear the just to hear the ideas flowing from his mind through his instrument with such a singular concern for their like compositional melodic impact. Nothing else mattered. Mm -hmm. None of these things were patterns. None of these things were... Each song has sub-themes. Like a couple of sub-themes that only happen in that song that he's playing on the saxophone. Yeah. And, man, just the world, it like... it. Like I said, for some, it, this just bit me. He became like what Zappa is to some people. Yeah, like train is to it's other a huge people, world. Yeah, but it's also like I, I, it's not lost on me that when you hear Fela play, it's like one of those great moments of hearing the composer at the piano kind of thing. Yes, you know. Yes, and like I, I just heard this thing, man. My friend sent me this thing of um, these home recordings of Christoph Kamita composing the score to Rosemary's Baby. You hear him at it's like from a tape recorder. He's huh. humming along as he's playing, uh -huh. and it's like this is the greatest <laughs> shit ever. And it's like you want to understand someone's music, you listen to them play. Yeah, you know. Yeah, especially when they got some far out compositional ideas. Yeah, and I've always like when my heart is really feeling worn, I go to the Alan Lomax recordings. Yeah. Um, or Bob Dylan. Yeah. Or I go to one of these people whose who technique is secondary yeah tertiary it's not even it's just like it's not even in the conversation yeah and Fela's music made me feel like that it's huge and I've I've walked right into the same mistakes that he would make as a player <laughs> yeah I've hit the same wrong notes in the same places exploring his compositions I mean like oh kind of feels good <laughs> yeah yeah and it's like oh that's there that's how, that's how that happened so when you're so you did so we're skipping around a bit but Fela on Broadway yeah huge production they they won Tonys you were with you were in the pit for mm -hmm. what a year I was on stage on stage you were the soloist yeah the band was on stage right yeah I was the saxophone soloist so you're playing solos mm -hmm. over a large group yeah on Broadway improvising improvising like three four solos a night. And when you get up there, like that, those little devils that sit on your shoulder and are whispering to you about what to do and what not to do. Uh huh. Like, are you like, how much of you is like, I gotta get up there and do my own thing? How much of you is like, I gotta approach this kind of like Fela? How much of you is like, tonight's performance can't be like last night's? 
Like it, it would seem like those devils, yeah. you know, get kind of loud yeah. in a situation like that. Oh, they do. I it was it was well. There was a few different numbers. There'd be like we go out fifteen minutes early, and we'd start warming it up. In front of the crowd. Yeah, yeah. we'd start playing, and uh, Alex Harding, the great baritone saxophone uh, player, would take uh, a solo, uh, uh. and then I'd be like, "Oh yeah, this is my medicine for the night. This is the reason I'm staying." Like every time I wanted to quit, which. It, you know, you what do they say? Ask a, a musician to complain and give him a gig is, is 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 how you get a musician to complain. Give him a regular gig. Yeah, and I would start immediately. I was complaining about everything in my mind. And Alex Harding was the guy that like whose uh, whose sense of humor and his wit and his just beautiful humanity pulled yeah. me through. He was like my stand partner. We sat together every night for like hundreds of shows. And, he, and he'd get up and play. His fucking he would play. Oh my god, he was incredible. He was so furious with the. Man, I it's like he just there was just so much feeling and he wanted the music to heal you and he he loved you when he played the saxophone you feel like he loved you mm-hmm. personally mm-hmm. like in a in 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 such a pure and beautiful way I've never heard anybody quite quite like that and, and this was like Eight shows a week, I sat next to this guy. It's brutal. Oh, man, it was so incredible, so yeah. inspiring. So then I just try to give some back like that. Um, and uh, no, I felt like I could do anything I want. Yeah. There was... Um, the MD was never up your ass? Oh, no. No, because, I mean, we had, we'd been playing Afrobeat together for 12 years yeah. at that point. They, I, I, and I sat through all the rehearsals. So when they were like, there's a saxophone solo here, I took it. They knew what I was going to... Right. It was... They developed a, they developed it around the way I was playing Fela's style. Uh-huh. Or the way I was playing Fela's music. And I was playing Fela's music the way that I play it. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't an imitation. Right. It was a deep inspiration. Um, and I... Like you say, the little spirits on your shoulders. Sometimes I would feel him. And... Um, and then other times, you know, I'm like, hello, hello, you there? You're talking to me? Okay, I guess I'm on my own tonight. <laughs> Fail as busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably in heaven. Yeah. Oh, probably getting laid in heaven. Most likely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's a terrible thing to say. But I guess, well, I mean, I'll say if you know Fela. Yeah, I mean, he, he enjoyed himself. He had a healthy, healthy sexual life. Yes. Um, but yeah, I would, I, I would ask, I would ask I would ask his spirit to to inform me. I'd yeah. invite it. I would invite it in. Um, sometimes th- there'd be inspiring people in the audience, you know, like Peter Gabriel was there one night, you know. Did you say what's up to him? Yeah, I went, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because yeah, nobody heard that. But, Do you think but, he heard it? No, I don't think he heard it. Uh-huh. Um, but I met him the next night Yeah. at a restaurant. Um on a lark, um, a friend took me to see his concert, and then there was an after party, and I got to go. And Peter Gabriel said to me, I really enjoyed the music. I thought the band was wonderful. I don't know how he felt about the whole show, but he just he said, I really enjoyed the music. I want you to tell the musicians how much I enjoyed it. And I said, oh, I, thank you, I will. He said, please make sure you tell them yeah. how much I enjoyed the music. Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel. And he was Gabriel. like, yeah. and his message was, give it up to the band. Yeah, and I, I, dude, he's a yeah. musician. Yeah, you know, he's like uh, a real fucking musician. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, what a hero. Uh, um, but yeah, so then, 
one of the main solos I would take was um, while they were doing dance solo improvisations. The dancers would get in a circle and they would dance for each other and for the audience, improvised. And they would take three soloists a night. It's a lot of improvisation on a Broadway show. Yeah, yeah. And they would rotate. And so when there's... And these dancers were incredible. They were some yeah. of the most inspiring artists like I've or... ever met in my life. Yeah, they had all kinds of all kinds of different training. Yeah. Many of them had done ballet. Many of them had done jazz and hip hop and tap. Um, and and you know, I mean, I met some of them had engineering degrees, and and others right. of them were in theater focused, and um, just like all kinds just, of different yeah, backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Heavy, heavy thinkers, heavy. And and their bodies were these temples and instruments that they were just. It's, it was incredible to be around this. I had nothing to say. I was all ears and all eyes. And they would start to move, and I would start to play, and I would look right in, and I'd be like, "Let's have a dialogue. Let's let me let's converse." And I didn't have to think. I didn't run out of idea. I would just watch them move and feed off of them. I mean, for a musician on Broadway. This shit never fucking happens. It never happens. And man, this is like the art that people have been practicing yeah. for eons. Yeah. It's like the fact that we've lost that. Oh, it's, I mean. It's, it's a travesty, the fact that we call ourselves alive oh, and we don't get it, to dance it, and play it, music it, together. It's a cosmic holocaust, you know? Yeah. It is brutal. Like, yeah. When you think about, yeah. I, just, I just read this crazy book. I'll show it to you. Uh... Uh, called Him from Ipiru. It's this guy who oh. found this music in Greece. Mm. And so the book deals a lot with like what is authenticity in music. Oh, yeah. I think about that. Oh. And his thing yeah. is sort of like authenticity in music is lost when the music becomes divorced from the culture that birthed it. So when it becomes commodified is when it, it begins to, to lose that. Hmm. And Hard to measure. It's hard to measure, and it's specific to each case, but certainly, yeah. like, that most people that experience music, that it's solely an entertainment thing, that it's a going to a festival thing where, like, you're drinking and, like, growing out, mm -hmm. which is cool. Like, that's a zone. Yeah. Thing. But, like, what you're describing, like, that's, like, a musical fucking interaction. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was... It, we were mainlining that feeling. It was like, <laughs> fuck, this is so real. And then, and then, then, okay, I gotta say one more story about Fela. Um, there was, there, there was a solo later on that um, I was supposed to play a romantic solo. That's when, all the instruction there was. Yeah, and it was, well, we were developing it. And everybody had an opinion about my damn solo in the romantic section. <laughs> and um, it was when Fela was meeting Sandra Isidore, who's a woman he met in the late 60s, I think 69 in L.A. Uh -huh. Fela went to L.A., learned about black nationalism, black panthers, uh, James Brown, and through, through this woman, Sandra Isidore, that he met. And that's how he invented Afrobeat. That was like, he had to leave his home for this whole thing to flip. And he wrote a song called My Lady Frustration, which is kind of thought of as the first Afrobeat song right. that has this style. He went back to Nigeria and said, here's my shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And it's fascinating to talk about what it means because when he went back, there was all that he's, you know, he really drove home the idea of this is original African music. And that was true, but it was also kind of a part of the sales pitch. Sure. Because it was, it was all like Cuban salsa orchestra instruments. Right. Um, right. The conga, it was congas. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't djembe's and West African. It was, it was like a, it was more Cuban style. Like a, um, anyway, this is an aside, but the, um, the, uh, uh, so, we're, we're, so in this scene, he's seducing Sandra Isidore and he has the saxophone, the, the actor, the great actor, San Gauja, mm-hmm. who played Fela. And he and I became such good friends uh-huh. and through this, through this, through this miming. And so he's miming the saxophone and seducing her and Bill T. Jones, wonderful director says, I want you to seduce her with this music. Stuart. You need to dig deep. You need to squeeze the lemon. And I'm like, all right, I got you. I got you. And then I start, I start going on and I go, and I'm like, okay, it's 1969. What makes you want to make love? And I'm like, probably something Coltrane Balladish. A little bit cool jazz. Sevenths, ninths held. This was actually, they record changes in this. I confess, I did play changes. And so I did that and I had that going and like, man, I was like, whoo, I think I'm feeling seduced. I, I seduced myself. <laughs> and afterwards, uh, uh, Orrin Blowdow, great guitarist. Oh, yeah, man. He was playing in the band. He was like, Stuart, man, that was so beautiful. That was so And I was like, man, all right, we got it. We got it. And then I run into the producer in the hallway and he's like, I don't know what you're doing with that solo there. It sounds kind of namby-pamby. It sounds kind of like smooth jazz. I'm like, what the, what the, do, 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 do. Yeah, I was so upset because I thought I had gotten it right. And I'd done something I love. Musicians will always know when it's right. It's just fucking idiot. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So then it comes up again in rehearsal and they're like, no. And, and. What they wanted, what they're trying to convey to me is, Stuart, you need to think about seduction with a saxophone. And I wanted to be like, yo, can oh, everybody in this hand, in this room that's ever, ever like met a romantic partner through playing the saxophone, raise your hand. That's me. I'm yeah. the only person who's ever done that. <laughs> so I think I should choose what I play right. here. Um, that didn't work. They were like, play something more, you know, sensual. And I'm like, all right, fine, fine, fine. I do it, and I do what I think is some combination of a Muppet Show waltz and like a Benny Hill stripper song. I'm like, right, and I'm not even a trained jazz saxophonist. Right. I don't have a subtone. You do like burlesque shit. Yeah, so yeah. it sounds like a real joke, and everyone's in the band is laughing. And when I'm done, one of the dancers walks up to me. She says, "Stuart." I don't know what you did with a solo in that part, but this is fantastic. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You fell for the burlesque? Oh, man. Nobody. And, th- and that's when I realized, shit, man, it's just different strokes for different folks. And that shit stayed in the burlesque. Thing. Yeah, the, the bendy kind of thing. Yeah. Oh. At the end of the day, that's what was communicating. You know, there's a joke about that. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a joke about comedians, but I feel like musicians get it too. Which is like, this comedian rolls into town. He does you know a weekend of dates, and you know the next day he's hanging out at the coffee shop. And this beautiful, sexy woman comes up to him. She goes, "Oh my god, I saw you perform last night. You were incredible. You're you're amazing. You're an artist." And he says to her, "Were you at the first or the second set?" <laughs> <laughs> 
totally. Yeah, it, it was it, it was a such a learning experience for me. <sighs> it was also it was also something to be to be up to that music for a good decade and to have really felt like it lived in my soul and then to be in a show where hundreds of people are employed and there's like a huge promotional campaign and millions of dollars are on the line and all of a sudden it's not just Does that bug you out? Me and 11 friends. Does that stress at you a bar. out knowing that there's these kinds of um considerations? No. That yeah. didn't. What stressed me out was feeling small in the production. Yeah. Um felt very felt the the job that I had in Antibalas was big it was like i was one eleventh or one twelfth right. or whatever in the fela musical i was, was a much smaller thing so it was humbling it was yeah very, very humbling even as a soloist you felt that way i did yeah like you could be I replaced did. the next day no right no although i did find amazing subs that came in and and found their own approach to it. Batty B did it, right? Yeah, Matt, Matt Bowder did it. Tony Jarvis, Morgan Price, yeah, uh, uh, Cheme did it. A uh, bunch of wonderful saxophone players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenny Hill. Um, but uh, I I didn't. Uh, oh, I'm losing my train of thought. Yeah. So when that when that show wrapped up, though, did you feel a bit of relief, like you could get back to to a more open musical world, or? Yeah, so check it out. When when I, I had that show, I was occupied from 6 o'clock at night to 11.30. And I didn't go out after the shows. Oh. I kind of promised myself I wouldn't. Um, I'd go home and I'd wake up at 9 a.m. And, and I'd tell myself, everything you can accomplish today, you have to accomplish by 5 p.m. Yeah. So I wasted a lot less time. Mm-hmm. And I had money in my pocket so I could hire rehearsal studios and I put together a band with um, seven of the best musicians I could find we rehearsed every week we would play at Zebulon I would record the concert Zebulon next rehearsal I would have notes we'd discuss improvisation I um, wrote out a bunch of rhythmic exercises that we started doing singing exercises musical games um I started taking uh, improv classes and gleaning games. Um, improv classes? Yeah, like comedy improv, theatrical really? improv. Where, like UCB or something? Uh, a place called um, Gotham. Yeah. Okay. And another place called The Pit. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, and I, so I took that information and I started putting it into musical games and um, started using it to generate original compositions with the, with the musicians. We called the band Superhuman Happiness. Yeah. And uh, we, we wrote a record. In that in that year that I was on Broadway, this is what two thousand two thousand and ten. Ten, yeah, yeah. And then at the end of the year, the Broadway show folded up, and I got a phone call like the last week of the Broadway show from a singer songwriter named Sam Beam, who has a group Iron, Iron and Wine. Iron and Wine, the great. He, he was like, "Come play with me." He found you through the show. He found me through uh, Matt Lux, the yeah. bass player. From Isotope. Yeah. He and Iron Wine is no joke. Yeah. I learned so much about poetry and Yeah. True true balladeer like um Yeah. And the 
He's the one who hit me to. I, I see you got Blood Meridian on there. Oh well, that's. I mean, yeah. Sam got me onto that. Blood Meridian is like the, like the <laughs> a love supreme of yeah <laughs> scary fucking bloody yeah. Uh, literature. Yeah, Sam Sam got me into that, yeah. and that made a lot. And it took me like eight months to read it. Really? I, I had a Kindle, which was good because I had yeah. to look up a word every every page. Um, yeah. I'm a slow reader. I read. Yeah. You know, I hear the words in my head. I, I don't like blaze through that book is i mean cormac mccarthy in general is just sort of like he just kind of like came up out of the ground like a potato you know he's just this mm. like gift of fucking literature uh, yeah i i was really moved sam turned me on to him so then i went out went out on the road with sam sam's deep yeah sam's real deep my sister um lived next lives next door to his sister who used to be in the band sarah oh yeah and they're raising kids up they're all around the same age yeah, they're really I've, close friends i've been to a barbecue over there in athens yeah yeah, yeah, we had a barbecue at at at, uh, at his sister's place and um, had the yellow mustard barbecue sauce, which Sam is into because he's from South Carolina. That's yeah, a South Carolina thing. Yeah, yeah we had that. Uh huh. <laughs> Are you still playing at Iron and Wine? Uh, no, we're still friends. Uh huh. Um, I just saw him a few few weeks ago. We yeah. had dinner. Uh, man, I, it's funny if you look around my apartment. There's a bunch of Iron and Wine uh, artwork because oh. Sarah runs the web store. Or at the time, she was running the web store for Iron oh. White. And when my wife and I went back when she was my girlfriend, we first moved in together. We said, we need some artwork. So she's like, here, I'm going to give you a bunch of Iron and White artwork. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think Sam does a lot of it himself. He's a, he's a special guy, man. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a really special dude. I really, really love Iron and White. It took, it took a long time for me because I, I get in these situations to learn from them, you know? Like yeah. when I was on Fela, I was there learning from the dancers. Uh-huh. I was learning from, you know, the spirit and composition of Fela. Right. Opportunities to study that. And I was learning from Bill T. Jones. Bill T. Jones, The, yeah. the choreographer, director, who was amazing. The force of nature, yeah. Oh, my God. It's incredible. It's really inspiring working with him. Um, gave me courage to not know. To run into a situation and not know. Dude, we get... I, I wouldn't. I don't know how much it cost every day to have eleven musicians and whatever twenty dancers, like union and guys. all the union yeah, guys, yeah, everything. Yeah. And he would walk in and he'd be like, "Okay, today, I don't know what's going to happen in this scene. We have to find out. Let's go." It's so deep. And it, yeah, it's it so wasn't. Deep. It wasn't. And it wasn't. You know, because when you're younger, you think the boss is supposed to have it all yeah, in their they head. Never do. And it's like, no, man, we're explorers. He's leading us in an exploration. Yep. We're finding out together. And I didn't really get that until, because you don't get that from conductors. You don't get that from way. conductors. You don't, I mean, in classical music, when you're that, in, But that's the trip of being the person in charge, is that you're a great improviser. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me, th- I mean, when I was a kid, my mom used to do this thing where, uh, you know, she was a single mom. Who literally like improvised meal to meal to uh-huh. keep the fucking ship together? <laughs> and she used to say this thing to us, and I still—it's like it's one of these things that makes me so happy when I think about her saying this. We get lost driving, and she would always say, "Don't worry, adventure mom has it." <laughs> you know, and it's that's these, amazing. It's one of these things where it's like a parent, a boss, a band leader, a conductor. Yeah. Like that's how—that's a leader. Yeah, you know, that's a leader. That's like, and that's like, well, what, what is that? It's a sense of humor. Uh-huh. It's a skill set. It's um, 
the ability to adapt and 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 see the way through things you know it's like when yeah. you look at this fucking idiot who's in office right now mm. the difference between him and the guy that was had that same office before is like the guy that had the office before had a sense of humor a sense of humility yeah. a sense a sense of time yes pause between the words in a way that would give you the the ability to let it soak in yeah you know like these yeah. are leaders yeah you know? he could communicate and, but and like they don't know the answer but like, hey, guys, I got you as we figure it out. That's yeah. what they say. Yeah. yeah. It, it was really inspiring. Yeah. Really inspiring. And then, so then I'm in Sam Beam's group. Sam is a poet. He's yeah. somewhat of a quiet guy. Sure. And um, it was just the poetry for for the weeks and weeks and weeks I was just studying poetry and his band was incredible he had Matt Lux he had um, Jim Becker playing stringed banjos guitars uh, fiddle um, from the band um, Caliphone he had um, uh, Joe Adamick the drummer um, Rob Berger in the group Rob Berger was in, a, in would, would come and go okay. and he was in a later iteration of yeah. the group and, um, and, and Justin Walter played trumpet and Elliot Bergman played sax yeah Elliot um, and singers, um, Marquetta Arglova and 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 um, um, uh, Rosie was there. It's all these folks. Um, it was a it was a fantastic experience, and there was a lot of opportunities to just play your shit and yeah. be do what you do in your own way. And I felt very actualized. I was surprised at how comfortable I felt in the music, and. Hearing these lyrics night after night never Powerful ever lyrics. got boring. Yeah. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah. Still, it's like something worth studying. And you know, it's hard to, to teach somebody to play like that necessarily, or to, to write to write that kind of poetry. But you can. I, I don't think you can observe. teach. I mean, you can't. I mean, you know, Lou Reed. Uh, I think he studied with Delmore Schwartz, the poet. Really? Yeah. I might be making that up, but I'm pretty sure like, huh. he actually studied with him. So huh. There are things that can be taught, but ultimately, all you're teaching is like how to articulate you know, these really yeah. intense feelings. Yeah. Know, which is why you know, great songwriters are you know, few and far between. But when you find a Dylan, when you, know, when you find the greats, it's like, yeah, yeah this, isn't, this isn't, you know, th- th- they are <laughs> what they are. Yeah. He told me, he said, he said I should find a way to put my humor into music. He thought I would have success with that. So a hero of mine told me that. Who told you that? Um, piano player, composer, Anthony Coleman. Oh, yeah. yeah he, 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 he talked to me about that. Uh, I, I still don't know that uh, I've quite figured it out. It's hard to do. It's hard to do in that. The way that I would want it to be done. One of the funniest guys I ever knew was my stepfather, who was, he passed away many years ago. But he was funny in that way that was very sort of understated. And it was a combination of few words, a pause, and a grin. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like, well, I don't, how, how do you do that with music? I, I think Morton Feldman did that. Huh. I, I hear a lot of humor in the music huh. of Morton Feldman, and it's very understated. Huh. It's that timing. Yeah. Timing. When when I was working on Fela, I met Miles Arnson, who became like kind of like my younger brother uh-huh. in music. He was eighteen, and uh, we would play together once a week. 
in his basement, in his parents' basement. <laughs> and like, like just blowing? Or? Yeah, duets. Yeah. And then we t- and I'd talk about music and things I was thinking. And I kind of give him little assignments. And one of the assignments was to improvise with um, Bill Cosby records. This, this is before. Pre, yeah, this is 2010. <laughs> um, because his timing was incredible. It's, I mean, it still is. Like, and it still is. Yeah. And you can, I mean, he's, can learn something from the timing without, you know, agreeing with his, right. his, his monstrous side. Um, but yeah, so this this sort of musical comedy timing thing is really oh, critical. It's, it's taking the beats. It's also, yeah. yeah, no, it's there. There's a connection there that is crucial. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you said something at the start of the conversation that you know you kind of knew as a kid that you didn't want to be like a like a like a performer as much as you wanted to be like a, a band leader or a band director or an arranger. I wanted to be a school band director. Yeah. I wanted to be like Mr. Holland's Opus. Totally. Yeah. I cried four times watching that movie. Four separate times. Well, I haven't seen it. Since Dreyfus it came out, had me but... fucking weeping. Yeah, man. When he teaches his kid how to play Imagine. Oh, yeah. When he sings to him and he has the light show and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only time I cried more than that was when I watched the Peter Gabriel concert. That, Just a couple years ago. You no, know, it was at Radio City with an yeah. orchestra. That was 2010. Cried. Oh, over and over again. Over and over again. Like twice in that Don't Give Up song. Yeah. I couldn't take it, man. It was so yeah. beautiful. Those songs are That's so beautiful. When that happens, man. Yeah. To me, just lose it. the song, the recording, where every time I hear it, I feel like my heart is being ripped out of my chest. Is Lester Young playing Stardust. Lester Young. Lester Young's the greatest ever. You know, I don't know anything about Lester Young. All right, we're going to cut this thing short. <laughs> Listen, man. <laughs> Are you no, fucking I got, kidding me? No, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up on... Uh, wait. Wait, you never fucked around with Lester Young? Is he on title? Me- <laughs> <laughs> You're fucking with me right now. No, I'm, I'm aware of Lester Young's work, but I've never... You've never let him have his way with you? No, no, no. I've, I've never... How's that I, possible? I started with Miles. Miles and, and beyond. So, I mean, I'm sure I got some Lester Young through Miles, but I never, and I read about how much Miles loved Lester Young. There's no reason, there, there's but I, no greater know. tenor player ever, there's no better clarinetist ever. Right. I've already did play Press, that's it. Yeah. I end of the, it's the start of the line, it's the end of the line. I gotta know more. I gotta know more about it. Chromat- music that's like comfortably chromatic, I, I, I struggle to connect with it there is when you begin to talk about the uh, the 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 um the characters and the autobiographical nature of music and what people are putting in and that man the perfect brew of pain of humor of technique of optimism and pessimism all at one time it's it's lester Ah. there's no one there's no one in my in at the end of the day, in any art form, in literature, in film, in music, that's it. It's Lester, huh? It's Lester, huh? It's Lester, and you can hear this guy because you know he's been dead for many years. Yeah, and there's these interviews towards the end of his life. You know, he became a drunk. He had a hard life, 
and there's these interviews. He was in, uh, in Paris. Did he die in, in France? It's the hardest thing to listen to, man. You can hear this man who has just given up. He's so sad. This is the 50s? Like 59, bro. Uh. But, and you can hear him. It's the, whole, the whole oeuvre is contained because he's, he's dead. Yeah. You can hear him play when he's in his 20s, and he's fucking shredding hard. He's yeah. slicing ribbons out of air with the fucking horn. Yeah. And you can hear him when he's at the end. The huh. booze has, you know, really worked its way into the sadness and the fucking anger. And you he's still playing some of those licks. You know? The armature huh. is a little wobbly. Uh-huh. You know, it's playing slower. It's yeah. sloppy. Yeah. Still sounds better. Yeah. Anything you've ever heard. Wow. Oh God, man. It's like Wow. Some people dig Star Wars. Some people dig the Bible. Uh-huh. I dig Lester. <laughs> Amazing. All right. I got to get in. I got to get in. Where do I start? Stardust? Oh, do I start with Stardust? Start by turning these mics off and shit and play Polka dot moon memes. Matt Lux told me the first song he played for his daughter was Lester Young, Polka dot moon memes. Yeah. He held his child in his arms. Yeah. And his child is long like 15, I think. So I remembered that. It's probably pretty cool. Yeah. You know how you keep something in your head? You're like, oh, I got to have a Mingus face eventually. And no, I know. I, I, I gotta have a. I, 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 I gotta have a Duke Ellington phase. I have my glaring holes like that. Yeah. You know, I got my glaring holes. Yeah, I don't. I, Cause I didn't. I was never. I was never allowed in jazz band on the clarinet. Well, they said your technique wasn't up, or. Oh, I could. I mean, you know, when I was when I was fourteen, I could improvise like as good as the other kids. But sure. I didn't. I did, they didn't want a clarinet. They didn't have him in the the Merle J. Isaac or whoever wrote the arrangements for. Uh, jazz bands didn't there wasn't clarinet in it they said oh you could play Dixieland fuck off and yeah and I liked that because sure. actually, my dad took me to hear Prez Hall yeah when I was uh, 13 they were super inspirational last year Prez Hall played me happy birthday on my birthday I was, I was hanging out at Prez Hall and they played me happy birthday on my birthday that's man life's and my dad sometimes. my dad took me to see them when I was 13 and they blew my mind did you call your dad up after that I did what did he say he was like I think I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Parents are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I mean, he took me to hear Pete Fountain too. Yeah. So that was my end. That was my Pete end. Pete Fountain. Yeah. That was my end was the New Orleans music. Man. And I, that, that got Pete me into Fountain the Fountain is some hip shit. It's beautiful. That's some yeah. hip shit, man. It's beautiful. I, I, a friend of mine texted me this Pete Fountain thing the other day. And it's one of those things where I had to stop. And it's like, dude, this is nastier. <laughs> so much nastier than like people should be allowed to be on the clarinet. Yeah, yeah, it is incredible. But I didn't. But the, nobody, nobody was telling me that like there wasn't a school. I was, I was into school. I was into school band, and there wasn't like an Artie Shaw thing. There wasn't a Benny Goodman thing. Those are jazz band with saxophones, trumpets, trombones, guitar going chank, 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 and bass. One of my favorite things to do is. I'm not a jazz person. I don't know fucking first thing about jazz. I've, you know, I know a few things. The tunes that really stick with me, the ones that really kind of hit me the hardest, I search for the great clarinetists playing them. Huh. And maybe it's just me, but when you find the clarinetists playing these tunes, you know, Autumn in New York or yeah. Tenderly or something, you know, it's like, man, these guys are, are punching you in the heart. Huh. In a way that like a fucking trumpet yeah. or a sax ain't doing it. Yeah. When I when I met my girlfriends, so we were. So I was supposed to go to Nigeria with Auntie Ballas 
in 2013 on Thanksgiving Day to play the Lagos Jazz Festival. We got to the airport and our tickets had been canceled. I think they'd lost the funding. Oh. They weren't willing to tell us. They were just kind of letting us find right. out. These kinds of things happen in international travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I called my girlfriend and she was like, get on the next train, come to my house in DC for Thanksgiving dinner. I got on the train and um, got to her house and this beautiful elderly woman walks up to me and it's Amanda's grandmother. And I talked to her for like 45 minutes before I even met the parents or met anybody else. So I'm in their living room talking to her grandmother. And she's telling me about seeing Artie Shaw. She's Whoa. telling me about seeing Benny Goodman. She's telling me about every hotel she went to and Tommy Dorsey's band and this place. And she's she a um, fan. Okay. But like a avid jazz fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And had seen everyone and had like a crazy sharp memory. And she, her favorite, favorite clarinet player was Pee Wee Russell. Yeah, sure. She said he was a tragic drunk, but very inspired. Yeah. And, um, yeah, those guys could deliver. They could emote a song. Yeah. There is a clarinet player named Charlie Gabriel in New Orleans now who plays in the Preservation Jazz Orchestra. How old is he? Preservation Hall Orchestra. I think he's 90. <laughs> he's 90. So check this out. I went down to record with Arcade Fire. Uh-huh. And they're like, we're going to get you and Charlie together. And I'm like, it's amazing, sweet. Let's see what this is going to be like. Yeah. And it's me and Charlie. This guy played with Aretha Franklin. Right. He'd moved up to Detroit, played with all kinds of people up there, and then come back to New Orleans, where he was from. And he, he, he was like the torchbearer of New Orleans clarinet. Still living. He also played tenor. Clarinet and tenor is made. That's a beautiful combo. Oh man, that's the double man. And we started playing, and he started doing this kind of rolling arpeggio. And I looked at him, and I played the arpeggio, you know, just like one chord tone away, right under him. And he was like, "Oh, we could do this. We can dance." So sad. And it was like for the first time, I, because I'd never gotten to play that kind of way with anybody right. but it had been asleep in my heart forever sure oh god and here i am with this elder in front of you know one of my favorite bands who's also you know my employer and um that's a corny way to put it no but, but i know what you said like yeah. They, yeah they they brought me in to play the session and i'm here with this guy and man the feeling was just so strong and he was like and he was like he he would lead one way and then he kind of lean in and I'd lead another and it was like we were moving and breathing from the very beginning and it felt so good to play with them we walk out That's of this and it's in a pool house that we're recording they record, in New Orleans yeah they, they made most of that record in this tiny little pool house it's incredible yeah um, we walk out the sun is setting the birds are chirping you can hear crickets and I say oh, let me carry your horn out to your car go out to his car it's a beautiful old mobile put the horn in the trunk he smiles at me slowly he says what's your name son <laughs> and i said Stuart." he said yeah what's your whole name Stuart bogey he said Stuart bogey it's good to meet you i'm charlie gabriel like the horn and he gets in his car starts it 
rolls down the window, leans out. He's like, I got a website. (laughs) 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 And he tells me his web address. (laughs) And he drives off. (laughs) But it was totally, it was really beautiful. It's, It's like, you can't sleep after that shit. No, man, I was so excited. You know, you feel old. You're 40 or whatever. You're not old. You just play with a dude that's 90 and sounds incredible. It was like, I felt so lucky. And what a gift yeah. for Arcade Fire to give me. Yeah. To be like, you are going to inhabit music with an elder right now. And they didn't care if they were getting anything for the record or not. They did get something for the sure, record. Sure, sure, but sure. it wasn't, that wasn't, they were like, let's make some magic happen and watch this. It was like it was such a gift. That is then, the best shit I've heard in a while. Yeah, yeah. And they'd been talking about it. It's like we're gonna get you with Charlie. We're gonna, we're gonna get you in the studio. With they Charlie. knew what was up. Yeah, they I, and like and I was like, okay, okay, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't. I just kind of like I don't think about things ahead of time. I don't is, get my hopes up. Right. I don't get my hopes down. I just go. Is but, he still around? Know, he is. Yeah. Have you have you had contact with him? Since oh then? yeah, he came out. He played. He played uh, Madison Square Garden. We did some shows in Europe. Um, Preservation Hall opened up for Arcade Fire for all of April. And he came out for a few of the shows, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Really incredible. He played Madison Square Garden. He played Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Bogey. (laughs) Bogey. This has been a good talk, Bogey. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for coming over, man. Oh, my pleasure. This is so fun. Yeah, I could talk all night. I'm going to put some Lester Young on now. Oh, yeah, we got to get that. All right. That was Bogey. Um, look, I, if you listen to this show with some regularity, you guys know I'm a big Lester Young fan. For some reason, a lot of these conversations lately have ended with me and the guest geeking out over Lester Young, uh, which I'm fine with. But you'll hear, you, you know, the, the Crack Hour episode ended that way. The bogey episode. Next week's episode ends that way. Uh, all people, you know, who I- I'm happy to listen to Lester Young with. Bogey's a great dude. Superhuman Happiness, the new record, Beacon, comes out this Friday. Go to yegsrecord.com. Go to stuartbogey.com. Go to 5049records.com. And uh, that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>